ask, God. Oh God, you are holy. And each of us came into the world unclean. And so we have a problem. We desire to live with you. We desire to approach you. And yet, we can't. Unless you make us fit. Unless you change us somehow to to be able to come into your presence without being totally consumed. As we take a look at this this morning, I pray that your spirit would instruct us, help us to see the glories of the gospel and the ways in which you have made us holy so that we can live forever with you, a holy God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let us articulate the problem again. The problem is this. God is holy. He's perfect. He's entirely righteous. And he cannot and he will not live with anyone who is not holy. He cannot endure in the presence of sin. He hates Sin. So that is a problem because humanity is sinful. When a sinful person approaches the holy God, he or she is destroyed, condemned. So the solution which the book of Leviticus points to, and and actually the solution isn't fully realized in the book of Leviticus, it is in the gospel, which is what we're going to see, but the solution is that God himself, not we sinful men and women, but God himself must provide a way for sinful humanity to be made holy. So, So that's what Leviticus is driving at. That's ultimately what the gospel is all about. And what I love about the book of Leviticus, and I just reread it here recently in preparation for this sermon. And what I love about it is that it establishes, it creates categories of thought in our brain for understanding the gospel. And one of the weaknesses of Reformed theology And I I love Reformed theology, but one of the weaknesses is this emphasis almost to the exclusion of other categories of thinking about the gospel, this emphasis on judicial paradigm. That is, that God must judge us, which he must, and that we will be found guilty except that God set forth his son to be our penal substitution. Penal is penalty our substitution, so that he receives the punishment that we deserve. Therefore, God can declare us to be not guilty. That is true. That is a true statement about the gospel, and it's a good statement. That's not what the book of Leviticus is about, though. And and so, though it is good and right that we have focused in on Romans 4 and 5, though it is good and right that we've looked back at the Old Covenant and seen that we fall short, that we're guilty, Uh, that we need a a substitute. We also must look to the Old Testament to, to ask God to help us to create new categories of thought so that we can have a more full, a more robust, a more well rounded view 
of what the gospel is because God has accomplished not just judicial pardon, but he has made us holy. So important. Another way to say that, he has made us fit so that we are able to approach him. This drives down to our very nature. It's not just about a de declaration of innocence or a declaration of righteousness. It's about him changing who we are. Taking us from unclean to holy. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Now in Leviticus, the solution looks like this. And I'm going to add a category that wasn't in the video. But, but there's certain rituals. There is a priesthood that facilitates this this uh, relationship between a holy God and a sinful humanity. There are purity laws for everybody else so that though the, the, the regular congregation would not approach God the same way that a priest would, that the average man and woman could approach God to some extent and the purity laws are put in place uh, to protect unclean humanity from getting too close and thus destroyed. At the middle of the book, so these three categories sort of go around in brackets from the inside to the outside. In the middle of the book is the Day of Atonement, where the high priest makes atonement by killing a goat for the sins of the people and then sending a goat out of town, uh, just symbolically showing that, that God will take our sins far away from us. And then the category I'm going to add is blessings and curses, a really, really important part of Leviticus, which is repeated in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Uh, that is, that if you follow the book of Leviticus, you will be blessed. If you keep the book of Leviticus, you will be blessed. If you don't, if you're, if you're casual with God, you will be cursed. So these are all the, the pieces of the book of Leviticus. Let's go through them one at a time, just giving a little bit more information. Make sure we understand the book of Leviticus, and then we'll show the link to the gospel. So as was said in the, in the video, there are certain rituals. And on the front end of the book, these rituals are sacrifices. We're familiar with, with most of these sacrifices. I'm going to divide the sacrifices into three categories not two. So there's sacrifices for devotion. That's the burnt offering. You bring an animal, and there's different animals depending on your position in society and your uh, ability to purchase animals. So the wealthy have to bring uh, a larger animal than the poor. And if you're a priest or a king or a leader over God's people, you have to bring a bigger animal than just the average citizen. A burnt offering is an offering that says, God, I I'm giving myself to you entirely. And symbolically then, that animal represents you and it's entirely consumed. No part of it is eaten. Then there are sacrifices for thanksgiving, grain offerings, often from the first fruits of your harvest. You'd bring the beginning of your harvest. You say, oh God, I'm just so thankful that you're providing for me. Peace offerings, which would be like a barbecue where you eat with the priests and with God. We're at peace. We have fellowship with one another. It's, it's why even back in Leviticus, this idea of breaking bread and eating together is an important act of worship and, and spiritual life within the community of God. And then there are sacrifices for offense. You have the sin offering and the guilt offering, which are similar but not exact. Now, now interesting to note, in the book of Leviticus, there is no offering, no sacrifice for intentional sin. If you intentionally go out and sin then the judicial law kicks in. 
If you do something and you're like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. I, I didn't really think it through. So it all has to do with motive. So in the moment you might have meant to do it, but it wasn't premeditated. Then that's what these offerings deal with. So the rituals of sacrifice, chapters 1 to 6. Then at the, at the very back end of the book, you have the different festivals. God has said, I want you to mark off in your calendar units of time. And I want you to do certain things in those units of time, ritual, use of time. And those things are, are going to communicate between me and you that, that I am your God and you are my people. And so we have the weekly Sabbath. We have the annual Passover, annual Feast of Unleavened Bread, annual Feast of the First Fruits, the annual Feast of Pentecost, the annual Feast of Trumpets, the annual celebration of the Day of Atonement, the annual day of the Festival of Booths. Get into sort of all of these. We can't get into all of them, right? Each one is a sermon. Uh, but when we're looking at the significance, I'll touch briefly on the significance of each one. And then every seven years, you're supposed to allow your, your field to, to lie unplanted. It's a year of Sabbath. And then every 50th year is a year of Jubilee where all debts are forgiven. And everyone goes back to the inheritance that was given to them uh, through Joshua. So I want you to mark off your calendar every week. I want to mark you to mark off your calendar every year in six different festivals. I want you to mark off your calendar every seven years. I want you to mark off your calendar every 50 years. And what we're going to see is all of those marking of the calendar are sharing something, teaching something about the gospel. So that's the first way is rituals. Sacrifice of animals and the ritual use of time. The second thing about the book of Leviticus is the priesthood. And there's a lot of uh, discussion about the ordination of priests and all of the ritual that a priest has to go through so that he is holy and at least ceremonially made fit to fulfill his function within the temple or the tabernacle. T temple is just a permanent tabernacle. And then there are these rules where the priesthood is sort of a double standard, but the priesthood, because of what the priesthood is to do, has to set themselves apart more than the average Israelite. There are holy standards that the priests have to live up to. And if a, if a priest is, is ceremonially unclean, they must make sure that they are not fulfilling their functions. Now, the role of the priesthood was this, that, that though all of Israel were God's people, God had set apart the Levites, and then within the Levites... The, the sons of Aaron, to mediate God's relationship with his people. And, and this is something that we've lost touch of, not always, but many of us, most of the time, have lost touch of this in our life, that, that it's no small thing to step into the presence of God. And within this whole priesthood, you, you also get the sort of the demarcation of space. So certain people can go to this part of the tabernacle and no further. And then certain priests can go into the holy place and no further. And only when they've gone through all of these rituals, so on and so forth. And then the high priest once a year can go into the holy of holies. And so the space of the tabernacle, which is in the middle of the Israelite camp, which is to be encamped all the way around the tabernacle. And with the temple in Jerusalem, the people were to live all the way around the temple. So just as God has marked off time, 
he has marked off space. He has set aside certain men that would be able to mediate a relationship and to step into sacred space. And there's examples in Leviticus uh, and in the book of Numbers of people who did not take this seriously enough. The two sons of, of Aaron, the high priest, were consumed because they were too casual when they approached God in the tabernacle. The third part of the book of Leviticus is purity laws. So you have your clean and unclean, and we have clean and unclean animals that can be eaten or not eaten as food. Corpses are unclean. Uh, if a woman gives birth, she is unclean, and she has to be, go through a, a process of purification. Uh, anyone who has a skin disease or leprosy, they are considered ceremonially unclean. If your house has mildew or mold, it becomes unclean. All of our rep reproductive fluids are considered unclean, and so on. And we don't have time to get into all of that, but what you have to really notice about the clean and the unclean, and they brought it out here, is everything that is unclean in some way is associated with a movement away from life. So, so as we move away from life, the best example is a corpse, right? A corpse is as far away from life as you can get, whether it's the corpse of an animal or the corpse of a person. That is death. There's nothing more unclean than death. And, and all of these uh, clean and unclean regulations are trying to give us categories of thinking so that we can understand that reality is in this tension between life and death. And, and the whole goal is to say that God dwells over here in the fullness of life. As you move away from life, you're moving away from God. So that's what this whole clean and unclean is all about. And then on the other side of the Day of Atonement, we have uh, not clean and unclean purity laws, but moral purity laws. Now, I find this intriguing about the book of Leviticus. If you go to this section of Leviticus, most Reformed Christians would say amen. It's the one part of the book of Leviticus where we're not uncomfortable. We seem to have been able to accept that God wants us to be morally pure, which is good. But, but if we do it for that part of the book, why not for all of the book, right? So, so what we're hoping to do today is to show how the, the moral purity is important, but it's just one uh, subsection among eight subsections plus the Day of Atonement in the book of Leviticus. And so we want to understand the gospel not just with as one-ninth of the book, but as the whole book itself and how it tells us about the gospel. So within this section on moral holiness, we have how we ought to worship, how we ought to engage sexually, what is appropriate and inappropriate sexual behavior, and then a whole section on social justice, that God cares for the widow and the fatherless. He cares about the downtrodden and the poor. He cares about those people on the fringes of society. So those are all the, the moral purity that God wants us to pursue. In the middle of the book is the Day of Atonement. So you have all these things that are trying to help us to get more holy, or at least ceremonial, so that we can, ceremonially so we can approach God. In the middle, basically, is this declaration, you can try your hardest in all of these outflanking 
division or uh, sections of the book, but at, at the end of the day, if you really were to take an inventory of, of yourself at the end of a year, you, you've fallen short. So God, in his grace, offered the Day of Atonement and said, so what we're going to do is one goat is going to be slaughtered, the other goat's going to go far away. They both represent you as a nation, and the high priest is going to do the most sacred thing in the year. He's going to take the blood of the sacrificial goat. He's going to bring it into the Holy of Holies. And he's going to smear it over the mercy seat and over the Ark of the Covenant. And then I will remember that these are the rituals that I have put in place so that I can dwell in your midst. So that you, through a very calculated, very demarcated, uh, very careful structure, can coexist with me and approach me. At the very, very end of the book, right before there is a, a section on oaths, which we're not going to get into today, is blessings and curses. I'll bless you. If you follow this book, I'll curse you if you don't. Obviously, the ultimate blessing is long life in the land and fruitful harvest. The ultimate curse is exile. We're going to get back to that. Now, this is a pretty tidy system. You, you could, though, though it is foreign to us, you could look at it and say, I don't think we need to improve on that. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's much cleaner, it's much tidier, it's, it's, it's all figured out for us. And all we got to do is sort of open the book of Leviticus, and we today could follow the book of Leviticus. And then every year we could say, you know, I feel that we and God are on pretty good terms. So it's a tidy system. There's just one problem for us in the church, and I've already said this, we can't really relate to it. it it's foreign to us. It, it almost seems like, is that the same God that we worship? Is that, is that really Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form commanding his people to worship him that way? It, this doesn't seem like Jesus. This doesn't sound like the, the kind of book that Jesus would inspire through the Holy Spirit so that we would relate to God in that way. Now you might be saying, that. why is he saying Jesus and not the Father? Well, remember, God is one, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has laid down the book of Leviticus so that we can approach Father, Son, and Spirit in the Old Covenant. So, we instinctively notice the contrast, don't we? If you had bacon this week, you, you noticed the contrast. You can't eat pork in the Old Covenant. It's an unclean food, unclean animal. The way that people lived under the Old Covenant is not the way that people live under the New Covenant. So much so that to the average person, we would say they're two totally different religions. But they're not. In fact, we are practicing the true Judaism. We are practicing the true and ultimate intent of the book of Leviticus. And that's so important for us to understand that. But noticing the contrast is good. And when we notice the contrast between life under the old covenant and life under the new covenant, then we have opportunity to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And whether it's the book of Leviticus or any other place 
in the Old Testament. When you come against something, you say, that is foreign to me. I don't understand that. I don't relate to that. That's not my understanding of God. That's not how I worship. That's not what I think about who God is. That's not this or not that. Then, then what you need to do in that moment is the way that we see Jesus in the Old Testament as we're describing it today. You have to say, well, how can Jesus make sense of these contrasts? And he does. We're going to see why. So what are the points of contrast in the book of Leviticus with our life and practice in the church under the gospel of the new covenant? Well, one, we don't bring a sheep to church. Number two, we don't celebrate the Levitical feasts. Number three, we don't have a priesthood or a high priest. I am not a priest. The elders are not priests in a Levitical sense. Number four, we don't divide the world into holy, clean, and unclean. Number five, this is kind of the exception, we do seek to pursue moral holiness. Number six, we do not have a high priest who atones for us once a year. We don't have the Day of Atonement. Number seven, we don't live under the daily promise and threat of blessings and curses. You know, for, for Israel, these blessings and curses weren't something far off. You know, anyone sinned this week? Anyone stoned this week? No, contrast. We don't stone people for egregious sin anymore. So we could either say, well, stoning is barbaric and ancient, which there's a lot of theological problems, right? Because God never changes, and he commanded stoning. Or we could say, there's a point of contrast. We don't stone anybody anymore. Why not? So we don't do all of these things except seek moral purity. Or do we? That's, that's the question. Do we? Everything that I just said there, is that all false? I think that I was a bit misleading because we actually do have and we do practice all of those things. So the remainder of our time today is going to say, we've identified the contrast. Now let's look at the continuity. Let's see the way in which Jesus brings coherence to the book of Leviticus and the gospel that we celebrate. So we're going to go through those things again and, and just ask the question. So the first one is, do we bring a sheep to church? Well, yes and no. Uh, we don't bring bleeding sheep. We don't, we don't bring a sheep and we don't go up here and we don't sacrifice one sheep per family. But we do come to church with a blood sacrifice. Have you thought about that recently? When you come in the doors to worship? You know, because it used to be that if you're an Israelite family and you're going to the temple or the tabernacle. Malachi, do you have the sheep? You got the sheep. Good, let's go. Now, we do say, do you got your Bible? That's good. How many of you have asked recently, have you thought of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice? I thought about that this morning. Okay, let's go. When you come in the doors at the back, do you just pause for a moment and say, I, I see Jesus hanging bloody on the cross. Do you 
by faith walk up to the cross and kiss his feet and get his blood across your lips and cheek? Do you reach out to the cross and get a handful of blood and cover yourself with it? In fact, you see, our sacrifice is bloodier than all the Old Testament sacrifices combined. You, you, you put together all of the blood from all of the animals killed over thousands of years, even predating the Old Covenant. Go all the way back uh, to Cain and probably back to Adam. You take all that blood, and it's not even close. You can't even put a number to how small it is compared to the bloodiness of the sacrifice that we bring to church. Hebrews 9, just listen to these, write them down and look at them later because we're going to go through a lot of them. 11 to 14, when Christ appeared of the high priest, we'll get to that in a moment, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, that is, he didn't go into the tabernacle or the temple. He went into heaven. He entered once and for all into the holy places. Not, not two times holy, but holy, holy, holy in heaven above. Not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify. Now sanctification in priestly thinking is to make one holy. If the blood of bulls and goats and a heifer make one holy for the purification, the cleaning of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. It's a reference back to you have to bring the best sheep. Without blemish, no sin at all. He offered himself as a blood sacrifice to God. For he will more greatly purify. Purify, that's a word that means that we're made clean. Our conscience from dead works. To serve the living God. We bring more than a sheep. Do we celebrate the Levitical feasts? Yes, we do. You see, each feast that God gave in the Old Covenant corresponds to an act of salvation that God has done and will do through Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't have time to go through them in detail, but I'm going to rhyme them off for you here. Uh, the weekly Sabbath. What is the weekly Sabbath all about? Well, the weekly Sabbath in the Old Covenant takes us back to day seven of creation. And so it was rest after creation. What is this, the weekly Sabbath for us as Christians? It's, it's rest after the new creation. 
And Jesus, who was raised from the dead on day one, corresponding to the days of creation, on the day, let there be light, the light of the world, who was slain by darkness, came out of the tomb, thus initiating the new creation. And the hope that the Sabbath points forward to is the new creation, where we will rest in Christ forever. You see, we're, we're marking off time because of the anticipation and the hope of creation and new creation. Passover. Jesus was crucified at Passover, and he is our Passover lamb. Uh, so the Passover is the blood of a lamb that, that appeases the wrath of God so that when God visits in judgment, his wrath passes over so that we can come out of slavery into freedom. God accomplished that for us on Good Friday, the Passover of Jesus Christ. Unleavened bread follows right after the Passover for seven days. And, and the unleavened bread is a life lived in response to the Passover. That is, leaven represents sin. Therefore, for seven days, eat no bread with leaven in it, which is pointing forward to, after you receive Jesus Christ, your Passover lamb, remove the leaven from your life. And live a life, not seven days, but a life that is unleavened, that is increasingly without sin. And that's exactly what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, your boasting about your freedom in Christ is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little sin in the church makes the whole church sinful. A little sin in your life pollutes your whole life. Cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump. He's speaking individually and corporately to us here. As you really are unleavened. He always goes back to that. Do this because that's what's true of you. You, you are unleavened. The sin has been cut out of your heart. Your heart has been circumcised. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, not with the old leaven. Don't, don't just take leaven out of your bread for seven days. But remove the leaven of malice and evil and with unleavened bread Eat that of sincerity and truth. So, I mean, that's just an example of two of these feasts fulfilled in the gospel. But we, we go on to first fruits. Do you know that Jesus was resurrected on the celebration of first fruits? First fruits is when, when farmers are supposed to bring the first of their, of their harvest or the first of their produce, or if you're a merchant, the first of your profits. And Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who will be raised from the dead. We're all going to be raised from the dead. Some to eternal punishment, some to eternal life. He is the first fruits of those who will be bodily resurrected from the dead to live forever with God. Then we have Pentecost. We think about Pentecost a lot in the church with the coming of the Holy Spirit. That was 50 days after Passover. And what the, the, the festival of Pentecost celebrated was that Israel, after Passover, went to Mount Sinai. And on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after receiving, the, uh, or receiving freedom from Egypt, God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came and wrote that law, not on stone tablets, but on our hearts. 
So these are the feasts that have already been fulfilled. Levitical feasts. But there are still more feasts. The Feast of Trumpets. We're told that when the trumpet sounds, Christ will descend in glory. It's coming back. That's what the Feast of Trumpets is all about. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, you might say, well, didn't that already happen? Yes and no. Passover is fulfilled. The Day of Atonement is that day when all Israel will look on the one whom they had pierced and en masse they will repent and be saved. And atonement will be made for the nation of Israel as well as for all us Gentiles. The day of booths, that, is, that was uh, originally to commemorate that they lived in the wilderness in tents for 40 years with God. And so the fulfillment of that is... Well, there's two interpretations in the church. Either the millennial kingdom, where Christ will come back and reign on earth for a thousand years, or if you don't believe in the millennial kingdom, you believe that he comes back as final judgment, then it's, it's to celebrate that we live with God in the new heavens and the new earth. So the, the festival of booths is just this promise that we're going to live with God. And if you remember, for those 40 years in the wilderness, God dwelt in the middle, and, and he manifested his glory, and the people lived around. That's what we're going to do forever and ever. The, day, the, the celebration of Jubilee is the cancellation of all debts and the returning to the inheritance given to us by God. The year of Jubilee looks forward to our eternal inheritance that is being stored for us in heaven. And on that day, when God gathers us together, that great wedding feast of the Lamb, He's going to say, I have an inheritance for every one of you, and never again will you collect debt. It's yours forever. Jubilee. Forever and ever. So we do celebrate the Levitical feast, what they fully intended. What about a priesthood? Do we have a priest? A priest is a mediator between God and humanity. And so, yes, we do have priests. I said it plural. You were probably thinking I was going to go to Jesus here. Not yet. We do have priests. What do I mean by that? Well, we are the priesthood of all believers. Why? There is no longer this separation of a particular group of men who have greater access than the rest of God's people. And so what it means for us to be a priesthood of all believers is that we all have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. And there's no man on earth that has greater privilege or greater access than anyone else who has been born again of the Spirit. Peter says it this way, that we are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we go out into the world now as priests for the unsaved. So we have access. The unsaved do not. And so we go out into the world and we say, we want to proclaim to you what has happened to us. I have access to God. And I'm going to go before God and I'm going to plead for you priesthood of all believers. We'll get to the high priest in a moment. What about clean and unclean? Uh, we don't divide reality into clean and unclean anymore, do we? You're so sure. We do. Jesus never undid the categories of clean and unclean. I just want to read to you from Matthew 15. 
Jesus called the people to him and he said, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now, just listen very carefully to that. Did Jesus say clean and unclean is an old-fashioned idea? No. He didn't. He said there is still clean and unclean and we can presume holy. But it's not really about Leviticus. Leviticus was a, just a set of object lessons so that, so that you could create these categories in your brain for understanding that God has ordered reality into holy, clean, and unclean. Now that you get that, you don't really need to worry about animals anymore and you don't need to worry about coming into contact with dead corpses anymore. Uh, all that was just to prepare you for this, that really it's what comes out of the heart that makes you clean or unclean. And, and so what Jesus did here, and, and if we kept reading, we would, we would go on. It's uh, uh, Matthew 15, 10 to 20. But what he's doing here is he's saying, look, every single person is unclean. Every single person is, is as unclean as a dead corpse. Every single one of you is as far away from the father of life as you could possibly be. He set up a massive problem. And in the text here, the disciples make this observation in verse 12. The disciples came to Jesus and says, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended? What, they heard that you said that? Why? Because, oh, the Pharisees could control what goes into their body. The Pharisees could control themselves from touching a corpse, but they couldn't control what comes out of an unclean heart. So they're offended. What, there's no, no act of righteousness that I can do to make myself clean? There's no ritual that I can perform? No. Every one of you unclean. Now this is the important part for us. If I just left us there, then we go out of here thinking we're all unclean and we have to sort of clean ourselves up all the time. And we're no further ahead than the Pharisees. We become legalists, Pharisees, works-based uh, moralists in, in a worse sense. If you look carefully at the book of Leviticus, there are rituals. There is never a state of unclean except for a corpse. There's never a state of uncleanness that cannot be undone through a set of rituals. And most of them have to do with uh, blood. Some of them have to do with shaving, some of them have to do with water, and some of them have to do with time. This is the point. The great ritual to which all these Levitical rituals point forward to is Jesus hanging on the cross. How does God make us fit to approach him? How does he make us holy? Not, not in theory, but in fact. He sends his son to do the sanctifying ritual that will make us holy forever. That's why I can say to you at, at one and the same time, we're all unclean. But really, I'm speaking of all of us before we were saved. Once you put your faith in Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ not only cleanses you, but sanctifies you. Now, I'm not using legal 
terminology. I'm using priestly terminology. So you say, well, that's not my understanding of sanctification. Well, just broaden your understanding. Allow the words of Leviticus to seep deep into your soul. That the sanctification is not merely a, a progression in experiential holiness. It begins with regeneration where unclean men and women are by the blood of Jesus Christ sanctified, which means made holy once and for all. Once you've been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is no going back. What a slap in the face of Jesus Christ to say that your cross cannot sanctify me. Your cross cannot make me holy. And it's not to say, well, I will be holy. No, you have been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. Use priestly thinking, Levitical categories of thought, and rejoice in the gospel. And that's why what I've just said, you cannot understand Titus 1.15 unless you have uh, wrestled with and received what I just told you. That is why Titus, Paul can write to Titus, to the pure all things are pure. You cannot be defiled if you have been sanctified by the blood of Christ. To the pure, that is the saved, the regenerate. All things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Why? Because uncleanness is not about animals. It's not about bodily fluids. It's not about skin diseases and mildew. Those are object lessons. The defiled, everything is defiled because the defilement, the uncleanness comes from within them. So do whatever ritual you want. Unless you cover yourself with the blood of Jesus, you're not holy. In fact, you're unclean. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Defiled is priestly language. To be, you defile something when you make it unclean. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, I just want to make it absolutely clear. I am not saying, and I'm not preaching perfectionism. Of course we wrestle with sin. Of course. But at the center of who you are, if you've been sanctified by the blood of Christ, you're holy always and forever without exception, without contradiction. That's the battle that wages in the life of a saint, a holy heart wrestling against a sinful flesh. If you haven't been made holy, there's no struggle except perhaps a legalistic struggle. Then there's moral holiness. Do we pursue moral holiness? Of course we do. We are to be holy just as God is holy. And, and the new covenant, though, this is the big difference. The new covenant comes with regeneration and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. He, he indwells us and he empowers us to live holy lives. Do we have a high priest who atones for us? Yes, we do. Jesus 
is our great high priest who atones for our sin with his own blood. And not just unintentional sin, but all of the intentional sin. Our high priest is so far superior to the old covenant concept of high priest uh, that it's once for all, for all time, for unintentional and intentional sin. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator, one high priest between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. The high priest has to be of like kind to those to whom he ministers. That's why the enduring humanity of Jesus is essential to salvation. If you don't think Jesus is still human, uh, you have to learn that. And if you resist that, you cannot really say that you have been born again. 1 John 4 says that any who deny the enduring humanity of Jesus Christ, that is, his perpetual high priesthood as the one man who mediates between us and the holy God, then you cannot be saved because he will not minister for you. But Jesus is our great high priest. Since then... According to the writer of Hebrews, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he's a man. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is forever without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Access. The very access denied under the old covenant system of Leviticus is granted to us because of our great high priest who opens the doors and says, come in, approach your God and Father. I've made you holy. I've covered your sin. Do we live under the promise of, th of and threat of blessings and curses? Yes, we do. The blessings promised to us is resurrection from the dead and eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever in every age to come, where we will reign with Christ. We will share in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everything that the Father has to give to the Son, He bestows upon us, except we don't become God. How's that for blessings? There's nothing more God can give us. What about curses? You reject Jesus Christ, and he will reject you. Just as the ultimate curse was exile from the land God promised, the ultimate curse is condemnation and exile from the new heavens and the new earth to live perpetually forever and ever in the lake of fire, which is hell. Blessings and curses, oh man, under the new covenant, they come into their great clarity. You see, when we preach the book of Leviticus as Christians, eternal life and eternal death hang in the balance. Heaven and hell. All that God has to give or the total withdrawal of God himself. Living, being made fit to live forever in holy, 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 which is perfect life, or to be condemned to unclean, 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 which is eternal death. All of these are Levitical categories. Priestly categories. 
So we come to the way that we understand Jesus through contrast. To properly understand points of contrast between the old covenant and the new, we must look to Jesus. I don't know what a Jew does with Leviticus if they don't put their faith in Christ. They don't even practice it anymore fully, most of them, if any. Day of Atonement, I don't think anyone's doing that now. In as much as there is, like I don't want to deny, there is much discontinuity between the old and new covenants, especially in the way we live our lives and worship God. There is much theological continuity. There is a real difference between life under the old covenant and life under the new covenant. Let us never again subject ourselves to the old covenant way of life and worship. The old covenant is passing away. There's differences. There's contrast. There's something new about the new covenant. But let's not throw it all away because in Jesus Christ, the deep theology of both the old and the new covenants is consistent. And this is why uh, I hope uh, I could say this and, and not have to explain it too much. This is why I just really struggle with the idea that we throw away the ceremonial law. Say well, the moral law is, is continuing, but the ceremonial law is done. I just Then we just cut off such an important part of the gospel. The ceremonial law is still in effect. It just looks different now. Because it's been fulfilled in Christ. In Jesus Christ, the deep theology, whether it be moral, judicial, or ceremonial, the deep theology is consistent. Finding these points of contrast and then seeking the way that they link together in Jesus Christ is such a wonderful way of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Praise be to God, we're in the New Covenant. Cover yourself with the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you. I thank you for Leviticus. I thank you for the gospel that, that we are living out the ultimate Leviticus. And you've done this through Jesus Christ in every way. Just as you have demarcated reality into categories of holiness and clean and unclean and you've set apart time for certain moments of salvation and redemption and, and you have... Uh, given us a way to become holy so that we can dwell in your presence and approach you boldly. Um, Lord, all these things we have in greater measure because of Jesus. And so we worship you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.